Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Good to see you all. Hashem, please strengthen my internet connection so we're able to be connected with each other through this whole thing. Give me a thumbs up if you can see me. Okay, there's a little bit of a de delay. Shalom, Bridget. Hi, Rivka. Jana, shalom. Colleen. Oh, Esther. Shalom, Esther. You got to come and see what's going on here. So good to see everybody. Tom, Victor, oh, Elaine. Okay, shalom, shalom. It's good to see everybody. Really, really good. Um, I know it was just last week, but for me, it actually feels like much longer ago that we saw each other. I think sometimes it feels like it feels long between sessions. Um, both because our lives and the world uh, it seems to be moving really quickly. There's just so much that's happening right now. But also perhaps because of uh, what we have to consider from each fellowship and to digest and to internalize between sessions, at least for me, because there is something very strengthening and therapeutic that I get out of this time together every week. You know, I never know exactly what it's going to be or how it's going to manifest itself. But, uh, but it always uplifts me. And uh, the case in point, the example I thought I would bring, uh, you know, for the entire last week since our last fellowship, the act of, you know, ritually washing my hands in the morning has been a different experience. I don't know how else to explain it. Since our last session, as I'm alternating between hands and the ritual washing cup, which I've done every single morning for decades, this past week I've been sort of envisioning myself as a Kohen, as a, as a priest in the entryway to the courtyard of the temple. You know, a priest washing my hands before starting my lofty, sacred service in the house of Hashem. I'm telling you, it's a powerful meditation. And I didn't even decide to have it. It wasn't a decision. It's just happening. And, um, and what's the courtyard in which I'm performing my service? My life, right? Where my life takes me. For today... My courtyard uh, of my life was uh, my wife, my children, my home, my home. You know, my home, that is the holy of holies for each one of us. That's where we up our behavior. And that's where we up our, our uh, focus and our service of Hashem. That's where it really happens. Um, but really, my courtyard today was out here, the farm in Judea. That was my courtyard for today. And what was my service in my courtyard today? Well, well I try not to schedule groups on Sunday because of the fellowship, uh, today a group just sort of slipped through. And despite feeling sort of a weak, weak today, I'm feeling a little bit weak. That's the truth. I try not to talk about it too much because I feel like I'm always sick. I don't know what's going on. But I think when you spend as long as I do, as many hours consecutively in the hospital, I've actually fared pretty well. But anyways, Hashem gave me the strength to, uh, to dutifully serve him by welcoming and blessing a bus full of tourists. Now guess who these tourists were? That's right, Germans. We got a lot of Germans out here. Uh, Germans that were coming to Israel to connect with Hashem and to seek him in the best way that they knew how to do. Uh, which by the way is all that could be asked of any of us. And it was actually really a special group. Uh, I think it was orchestrated from above because it was the first time that I hosted a group starting the tour on the chuppah deck overlook. I really should have put a picture of it in here. Um, Esther, you're smiling because I'm sure you're getting pictures from all these different sides and different angles. But you know, the, the other group that I told you about last week that had just finished building the pergola before Shabbat, well, this was the first group that actually stood on that holy platform, right? Like standing at the edge looking down at the breathtakingly dramatic view into the Arugot Valley, the view that soon one day will be filled with water flowing from under the Temple Mount all the way to the Dead Sea, bringing it back to life, as the prophet Zechariah said would happen in the times of Mashiach. Really, it was a big moment for me. I, I almost didn't know what to do with it. It took me by surprise. Here's a picture of the group. I knew I had to capture the moment. So here they are. Now, for those of you who have been to the farm and received a tour, you know, it's on that very spot under this pergola deck chuppah overlook. I don't even know what to call it. It's from that spot that I start the tours. You know, I would talk about Judea and the prophecies of 
where we are, that we're in the wilderness of Zif, where David hid from Saul and he composed so many of the Psalms of Israel. You know, I would just like orient everyone there. And I would conclude that first stop on the tour, overlooking the valley by sharing the vision about how one day, one day, there would be a chuppah deck overlook suspended over the Arugot Valley. And I've been dreaming about it. And the partners, we've been talking about it. And we never knew whether it would really even happen. I've been dreaming about it and yearning for it for so long that I almost didn't know what to do or to say now that we were standing on it. It was like, it was surreal. It was overwhelming. I actually remember thinking that we've spent so many thousands of years yearning and praying for redemption. When redemption actually does come, will we even know what to do or how to respond to it? What, what will we yearn for then? I don't know. It, it just brought up questions that were just unexpected for me. So that German group, they were in my, you know, they're in my temple courtyard today. They were in my life today. They were part of my divine service today. And then as we entered the house of prayer, a sweet, humble German man asked if he could take out his flute, which I think he was just learning to play. And, uh, and here's what he played. <laughs> How beautiful is that? Just think about that. A German Christian man playing Hatikva, the national anthem of the Jewish people, on a flute in our house of prayer, Hatikva, the hope, the hope that we had deep in our hearts as we were in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And now the national anthem of the state of Israel is being played by a German in a house of prayer in Judea. You know, we will be like dreamers. This whole thing seems like a dream. Every day seems so like a dream dream after dream after dream that it's hard to even keep, keep track of it all. Um, I want to do a, a special you know, fellowship just about all the stuff that's going on here because I keep trying to stick some of it in. But anyways, uh, the rest of my holy service today in my courtyard is this fellowship. You know, this fellowship, which I always consider my primary greatest service of Hashem every Sunday. Usually on a Sunday, there's really nothing else. You know, fellowship, study and prayer and prep followed by the fellowship itself but um you know just like i was thinking just how fortunate am i that this is my courtyard in which i merit to serve my creator you know all of you who are the greatest gift and blessing in my life you know there's my wife my family the jews of judea the you in this fellowship and you're part of my courtyard you know, in which I can serve Hashem, my, my king, my father in heaven. I couldn't be more grateful for my lot. And so that's my courtyard. And what's your courtyard? We talked about this last week, right? For each of us, it's exactly where we are. Wherever Hashem has put us, everything we are doing in our lives, everything is our temple service. No less important, perhaps. You know, by the way, just curious. I'm not like a ritual hand-washing evangelist, but I'm just curious. Am I the only one? that's gotten a little bit more into ritual hand-washing this week. Raise your hand if you have even thought about that. Okay, there's some hands. There's some hands. And there shouldn't, it's not, you shouldn't, not, you should have your hand up. I'm just asking. Um, anyways, uh, because, you know, that's the washing. That's how I initiate my entire day. Uh, and it really does add an element of like a greater mission and purpose for things which otherwise could be mistaken for mundane. And that's just what I got out of this last week's fellowship. So I thought, for this fellowship, we could dive in and start talking about the judicial reform legislation. And hold on. While I know that many of you have expressed your desire to me to hear more about it and learn more about it, others of you may think, why all this talk about a local Israeli political issue? And let me guarantee you, we're not going to be repeating the stuff we've gone through already. Okay, we're not going to go into the details. This isn't about the details, actually. And, and so, you know, my answer to that is that. This is not just a local Israeli, Israeli political issue. What's happening here feels like it is ripping the country apart. At times, you know, seeing the divisions and the hatred feels like it's ripping me apart. You know, it, it, it hurts. It really hurts to see brothers at each other's throats. You know, like we have a group of my entire army unit with a, in reserve duty, and people are fighting with each other, and we never fight with each other on this group. 
It's all just there to bring us together and remember that what brings us together is so much greater than what brings us apart. But people are taking this really heavy and really seriously. And I guess because it is a serious thing. And by the way, I think that part of the reason that so many Israel lovers like all of you really want to learn not only about the Bible, but about what's happening within the country and in the hearts of the people is because I think there's a growing recognition and understanding that it is all interconnected. You know, for example, let's just look back just a few years, right? What seemed like a political conflict about taxation between King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. You remember that whole thing? Not only did that make it into the book of Kings, into the Bible, a political current event made into the Bible, but this seeming current event led to the destruction of the temple and the exile of the nation of Israel from the land of Israel. And if people didn't want to hear and learn about current events, they wouldn't have understand, understood what led all that to happen, what the, what the root attributes were, what was happening under the surface. Because really, I think the division of life and the division of the world into clear, separate, disconnected categories is really a Western construct, which doesn't apply here in Israel. You know, don't mix church and state doesn't apply here. It can't apply here. And the truth is that what we're seeing in America today and around the world shows that it doesn't really apply anywhere. You can't separate these things out from each other. You know, make no mistake, understanding what may seem like, like simple current events here in the land of Israel and around the world, but particularly here in the land of Israel, is critical to understanding the way redemption is unfolding in the land and in the world as a whole. Because what's happening here in Israel is not disconnected from what's happening in the nations throughout the world. You know, I'm not doing any deep dives here, but it's clear that the globalist powers that be, you know, they, they want to make it seem like all these conflicts are disconnected. But really, you know, the Norwegian farmers having their farms destroyed in the name of climate change and then climate protection. Have you heard about this whole thing? The Norwegian farmers, you know, uh, Americans are mutilating children's bodies, transitioning them in the name of woke equality. There's so many things happening, so many crazy things happening, upheavals around the world, and they are deeply interconnected. And I really think that we need to do our best to connect the dots before it's too late. And I'm not trying to say here that I have figured it all out, but I am trying to look at it with sober eyes, with dispassionate eyes, with eyes of faith and with courage and to figure it out. Uh, because unless we can understand what's really happening here, there's no way that we can wisely and prayerfully and thoughtfully determine the right course of action that we should take. So, uh, so let's try to do that together. You know, I really think it takes all of our perspectives to figure this all out together. So feel free also to, you know, weigh in in the, in the comments either now or later. But anyways, you know, you see here, um, you see the news in Israel. And uh, it makes it appear that this issue of legal reform is dividing the country. And while the news is often exaggerated or just lies all together to fit a certain narrative or whatever, in this case, it, it feels it seems to be true. The country's more divided now than I've ever seen in my life. At least it feels that way. Families are being divided over the issue. Record number of reservists, you know, army reservists like myself and Jeremy. Record numbers are coming out and saying that they would refuse orders from this government. I can't even imagine, no matter how crazy or left-wing or insane this government ever got, imagine that, you know, five to six million Americans were taking to the streets week after week in that country. It would be a very, very big deal. Well, those are the numbers that the media is reporting have been taking to the streets here in Israel, you know, uh, proportionally. You know, to be fair, those... Okay, so they're the numbers that the leftist media is reporting, but, but whether or not their numbers are accurate, something is definitely happening here. You can feel it in the streets. I can feel it in the air. Something is happening. Now, as often happens when we have a conflict in those, those longest and most meaningful uh, relationships we have, the relationships that matter the most in the world, the ones are the, that are the least simple, you know, the fights eventually become about something much larger than the topic that seems to be at hand. You know what I'm talking about. It's not about who's doing the dishes and who's not. There's something much deeper happening. The fight isn't really what it's about at the surface level. You know, it, it's about something different altogether. 
It's about a much greater and broader and all-encompassing thing. And the current fight that we're seeing here in Israel is only a manifestation of a deeper and more painful issue that goes way back even before the foundation of the state, all the way back into the Tanakh. And that's what's happening here. Now, the other day I went to Shiloh, not to my son, that's his name, but to the, to the city of Shiloh where the tabernacle stayed for the bar mitzvah of the son of a friend of mine. And I saw my dear friend, my brother, one of my greatest rebbies in the world, Yishai Fleischer, who you all know, I think all of you know. And he explained to me what was going on in such a way that, I mean, rarely am I touched on such a profound level. It really brought a semblance of peace to my soul. And I'm telling you, tears to my eyes. Tears came to my eyes the way he explained it to me. And as I was walking away from our discussion and feeling lighter and more hopeful than I'd felt since really the whole thing began, I started reflecting as to why I was feeling that way. And I realized that Yishai gave this conflict um, a spiritual and historical context, you know, sort of a, a biblical dimension that helped me put it in its place. And therefore, I felt hope, you know, now as opposed to an isolated modern conflict about judicial reform, the wisdom of the Torah was able to illuminate my eyes and my heart in a way that I had never considered about this conflict. And so I was going to try to explain it to you, but I asked Yishai to. I was going to log him in uh, live, but we were having connectivity issues. So, uh, so here he is. Here is my dear friend Yishai Fleischer. So Yishai Fleischer, thank you so much for joining us. You look fantastic. You look great. Um, I want to just launch right in. You sat me down and you shared with me a, uh, a mind-expanding, soul-expanding perspective on what's really happening here with the judicial reform in Israel. What's it really all about and how we should think about moving forward, what the different options are, what the different scenarios are. I wanted you to share it with our fellowship family. So uh, dive in. Ari, thanks a lot, and uh, great to be on the fellowship. Um, you know, I was positing that the issue of the judicial reform is really just a kind of uh, a topical a kind of veil, uh, not really the issue that's going on behind the scenes. What's really going on behind the scenes is a kind of uh, class war uh, or a social inner Jewish social conflict. And it's really between two energies, between the secular Zionists uh, who started the state of Israel and continue to be in many ways the elite uh, that control many of the key uh, organizations and key elements of, of Israeli society, which include the army, the judiciary, the high-tech sector, the arts, the news media, um, and in general, and the finances, of course. And that could all be, one could, if wants to draw kind of rough lines, one could call that Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is one node uh, of this social conflict. The other node is Jerusalem. And roughly speaking, Jerusalem stands for religion, for Torah, for spirituality, for an anchoring in the historic past, uh, in the Bible, in the stories that happened there. And Jerusalem stands for really the whole mountain range of Judea and Samaria, what I call just Judea, uh, and, and all the stories that, that transpired that are the root uh, of the Jewish peoples right in the land of Israel, our historic connection, our connection to God. And so there's a, a classic tension in, in the past. It's been written, books have been written like Athens and Jerusalem and Rome and Jerusalem. Today, it's Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The only difference is, is that these are not uh, two different peoples, but one and the same people. Now, I was looking back into the Bible to try to find cogent examples that we could use from the biblical past to help us think about how do we deal with this pretty classic, actually, social conflict that the Jewish people have within them. And I came up with three. There are others, by the way. There are others. But I think that there are three one, three that, that basically lay out this tension and how to proceed forward. So I'll just launch into it. The first one is um, King David and King Saul, Shaul. King Saul is the first to be anointed by Samuel. Uh, he represents kind of the first kingdom of, of Israel. Uh, but soon he makes mistakes, and uh, King David is anointed. Uh, now, King David is anointed, but he doesn't rule. Saul's still ruling. But Saul finds out kind of that King David is trying to be the next king, and he starts to chase after him, and he's chasing after him, and he's running after him, and he wants to destroy him. Uh, and King David is always saying, no, Saul, I am your servant. You are a Messiah in the sense that you've been chosen. 
you are a, a, a chosen of God, a messianic figure, an anointed figure, uh, and and I will always pay obeisance to you. And even though I have strength, even though I'm not nullifying myself, even though I could have killed you, no, no, I'm 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 going, you know, I'm going to respect you. But it is true that I'm the next king. And so at some point, Saul, you know, you kind of always expect Saul to to relax and to accept that. And King David's also trying all the time to marry into Saul's family. He's trying to marry his daughter. He's trying to be best friends with his son. He's trying to honor his other son. He's trying all the time to respect the kingdom of Saul, but Saul doesn't accept any of that. He chases him until to the point that he self-destructs. And when he self-destructs, he basically gets hurt in battle, and then he kind of falls on his sword, and, and he's out of the game, and King David begins his reign. Now, this is likened to the tension between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, where Tel Aviv is the first kingdom of the reborn Jewish people, but then Jerusalem begins to rise. That makes sense, because the Jewish people were not going to be just Tel Aviv. We were always going to return back to being a spiritual light onto the world. Uh, and so there's this tension. Now, now finally, King David, i.e. the mountains, i.e. Jerusalem, the Torah world, starts to ascend. And Saul, the, the, the Tel Aviv kingdom, is just flipping out and wants to destroy uh, uh, King David and, and the Jerusalem version of Israel. And so what they're doing is, is that they're kind of like chasing them and, 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 and squeezing them and oppressing them. But at the end, they're kind of there's an element that wants to fall on its sword. What is that? That's the Tel Aviv Jews who say, I want out of the country. Forget it. I'm leaving. I'm going to Portugal. I'm going to wherever it could go. I want out. And they're also breaking the vessels of the army and other things that you see them really ruining right now, vessels that they themselves built because they prefer to just let it all fall. And there's a kind of mania, which is if you're going to rule, then, then I'm going to try to destroy the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle. So that's so one option is basically I call that option one side loses. And the side that's going to lose is probably the Saul kingdom because the Davidic kingdom is the one that's ascendant. So that's one option. King David, King Saul, Saul loses. Option number two. Option number two is a very classic option that everybody knows, which is that the kingdom splits. There's the kingdom of Israel. There's the kingdom of Judah. And it's actually very much like the situation that we have today. There's two different kingdoms. They don't really like each other exactly. They don't understand each other. They're not speaking each other's language. And one is an economic powerhouse. The other one is a spiritual powerhouse. So they split off. And even in the Israeli right wing in the 80s and 90s, there was such a discussion of, um, of Judah splitting off and creating a, a kingdom of Judah. So it wasn't always a left wing idea. It was a right wing idea. But like you see right now, a kind of tension between these two poles. And so one... A second logical option is have an amicable divorce or a divorce, split off two different kingdoms. Of course, we don't want, nobody wants that option because nobody wants to see a divorce. Uh, and also that divorce in the end led to the eviction of the um, the scattering, the disbursement of the 10 tribes, the tribes of Israel that were split off. So we don't want that, but it's at least a logical option about how to move forward, which is, okay, you see this tension. You guys want the country, you guys want the country split. And you have a kingdom of Israel and a kingdom of Judah. And, and it, it in many ways mirrors the situation that we have today. Um, a third option is one that's less known to non-Jewish people, uh, but is also a biblical option. And that is the option of Zvulun and Issachar or Issachar. And these two tribes, what they did is that basically they came to a conclusion that one was good at the finances. One was good at going out uh, in the ships and traveling and, and, and bringing back wealth and trade and all that kind of stuff, but they didn't have the time to study the Torah. So they turned to this other tribe, which was good at actually studying Torah, and they said, you study Torah, we will, we will support you in the study of Torah, which is a very serious, intense uh, uh, intellectual pursuit and spiritual pursuit. You study, we'll go out to make money, and we'll share the, share the wealth and also share our our uh, the share in the world to come, meaning to say we will we will we will have a, a shoot food a deal a cooperation, and so the Torah people studied Torah, the money people went and did money, and and you know they fed them physically, they fed them spiritually, and they they got along. It's called Zvulun and Isachar, Zvulun and Isachar, and so if you think about it, there's something quite beautiful about that option. It's really an option of of sharing the greatness that that both these poles have. So let me conclude with, with three very short points, which is one. One option is that, as I laid it out, that there's three separate options. 
But in truth, it could very well be that there's going to be a micro element of all three of these options. Some people will choose like option one to leave. Other people will choose to split off and other people will choose to work together. But in broad terms, there's these three options. But in reality, it could be that people will choose or the country will choose elements of all three. That's point number one. Uh, point number two, I think is very important, is that this is maybe very important, is that the truth is, is that we actually have option number three running right now. We really do have a strong Tel Aviv and a strong Jerusalem. We really do have a state that's well-financed and also strong spiritually because of these two elements. Let's call them Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, or maybe the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, and the so-called settlers, and the Tel Aviv folks. The truth is, is that there is a, that beautiful connection. And, and it's also uh, highlighted by the fact that now we have a train that connects Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 26 minutes. Okay, 26 minutes is the numerical value of, of God's name, Yud uh, Vave, right? So it's like, it's, it's God's holy name. It's that connection between these, these two elements. That actually does exist. All that's lacking is the love of, of those, th that feeling that you love one another, that you like one another like the Haredim in Jerusalem, you like the, the, the ultra-Orthodox in Jerusalem, you like the secular in Tel Aviv, and, and we're not going to try to change each other, we're going to try to love one another. And that's a missing component. And point number three, uh, last one is, if I had to send out a, um, uh, a postcard that described what Israel is, well, I could describe it by sending a postcard of Tel Aviv and the kibbutzim and the Hebrew language and the army and the whole secular Israel rebirth. And there's a lot to put on that postcard. Or I could put a postcard of Judea and Samaria, Hebron, Jerusalem, the hilltops, the study of Torah, the Western Wall, the Temple Mount, the return to the you know classic foundations of what Israel is spiritually and historically and biblically. So I could send one of those two postcards. Or I could send a postcard that shows Jerusalem on the hill, Tel Aviv on the seacoast, and the interplay, the dialectic, the discourse between those two elements, the beauty that Israel has actually, in a short amount of time, you could get to Jerusalem, this spiritual capital of the world, and Tel Aviv, this financial and, 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 and ideas capital in this world. And, and it's actually the interplay between them, which is so beautiful. And this relates to point number two, which is all that's really lacking is the love. That's really what we need right now. If we can get over a lot of that resentment that has been built up over years and get to a place of loving one another, we could actually have a beautiful country without any big changes. The way it is right now, just really what the missing ingredient is a little bit of love and appreciation. Thank you so much, Yishai. Uh, I love that so much. And I, I think the element that first struck me when he was speaking that spoke to my soul so deeply was the idea that, that Saul hated King David. He wasn't king at the time. Well, he was. Saul hated David, but David would not bring himself to hate Saul. Saul wanted to kill David and David would not hate Saul. And I was like, yes, that speaks to my soul. They can hate me. They can vilify me. As long as I don't need to hate them, I can be happy. My soul can be at peace. And I think that that's what really spoke to me. Because you see, this conflict isn't about judicial reform. It's about the fundamental identity of the state of Israel. Are we just, you know, another member of the European Union, another westernized state uh, that's, uh, you know, led by unelected, self-appointed, left left-leaning globalist oligarchy of enlightened ones who, who they're the ones that really call the shots and they can strike down any law that they want based on whether they think it's reasonable. Any judicial appointment they, they want, they don't agree with, they can just strike it down, which you see why that really renders the Knesset and the democracy of Israel like just a, a farce. It's not real. It could just be struck down by these dudes, you know? And anyways... So that's one thing. Or are we the nation of Israel? Are we a Judean nation whose life and our culture is a reflection of our identity as Jews in our indigenous homeland, where our values are not dictated by woke global elites, but by the God of Israel and the wisdom of our sages? And this is a conflict of historic proportions and the fate. I think that the fate of the world lies in the balance because what we are seeing, uh, for example, in the World Economic Forum, Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, if you're following this World Economic Forum thing. The World Economic Forum, I would say it's like a global conspiracy to control the world, but it's not a conspiracy because it's out in the open. 
they're very clearly and openly stating that they're going to want a global reset and to get the entire world under their control. You know, so there's the World Economic Forum or the back rooms of the United Nations. You know, I believe that what we're seeing can be compared to the power uh, to the Tower of Babel, where the world came together with, you know, all kinds of new building technology to build a tower so high that a unified humanity could defeat and banish God himself, right? The bricks were uniform, the people were uniform, the differences that make the world so rich and beautiful were just banished and destroyed. And as these, you know, powerful organizations and cabals of people are moving forward to create this sick, godless utopia and make that into a reality, what they're doing to distract us from fighting against this is that they're pitting us against each other, you know, dividing us up based on superficial nonsense and stupidity. Like, it's just so boring. I find it so boring. The identity politics, the race, the sexual orientation, you know, they, they define us and make us define ourselves by the most irrelevant, external, superficial, immutable characteristics that there are, and dividing the world up into race and victimhood status. You all know what you see what's happening. You see it. So as I was having moments, fleeting moments, but real moments of feeling a little bit hopeless and brokenhearted as I see this politics of division now invading Israel as well, I saw something that gave me hope. And I'm so excited to share it with you. I've been looking forward to this since the fellowship started. Because what happened was, it was this past week, that the legal reform protests were making their way into the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood of Bnei Brak. Right, uh, it, it was egged on and inspired by the leftist media in Israel who wants to keep the country as divided and fragmented as possible in order to fight this judicial reform that would actually put the power back in the hands of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel and not these global elitist leftist media people. I'm sorry if I'm going on and on, it seems like I'm raving. But anyways, the idea was that the secular protesters would essentially take the fight to them, you know, directly to the religious sector that by and large supports this legislation. It was like, you know, it was like, you're religious? You wanna steal our country? Well, we're coming to you, to your streets, to your homes. We're bringing our rainbow flags and our hatred and our rage into your neighborhood and you're gonna feel it. You know, it was really designed to be a campaign of incitement and intimidation. And I was so afraid of seeing not only like fights and clashes, but real, real violence. And as I was bracing to see this heartbreaking hatred and vitriol and even, you know, violence pouring out into the streets, I saw something else altogether. Starting at, it was, it was Thursday night known as Erev Shabbat, Sabbath Eve, when there's a sense of joyous preparation for the Sabbath in the streets. And when these primarily secular Jews arrived in mass, they were all riled up for a fight. The religious Jews of Bnei Brak met them, not with rage or with hatred, but with Cholent. You know what Cholent is? That Sabbath stew. They met them in the streets with Cholent and with cookies. Now look at this. It's a little clip from the news that was shown once and never shown again. But what you saw there, they were handing out cholent and drinks and cookies, and it was just beautiful to see. It actually reminded me of a scene in a movie I used to love called Braveheart. Who here has seen Braveheart? It's okay. We can confess. R regardless of what you may think about Mel Gibson, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. It was a movie about this, you know, the evil King Longshanks of England that uh, was, you know, occupying and oppressing the people of Scotland who were fighting for their independence. And, uh, you know, they were led by this brave Scotsman named William Wallace. Anyways, there was one scene where this evil colonialist, imperialist, evil king of England conscripted other Scottish soldiers to fight against their Scottish rebel compatriots. And they were promised this, that, and the other thing. Anyways, in this scene, in this scene you're about to see, Longshanks, the king, is sitting on his horseback at a distance, eagerly waiting to see the Scottish kill each other turning the battlefield red. Right now, here is the scene. 
but you see them, they're hugging and they're ah, and they're hugging each other and Longshanks is just furious. I don't know how it was cut off there. But you know, um, when it came down to it, they were brothers and they wouldn't fight each other and blood is thicker than water. And now picture evil King Longshanks being the leftist Israeli media who's been throwing kerosene on the fire, being, uh, you know, maybe Longshanks was the Biden administration and the EU and the UN who openly supports and most likely finance these leftist globalist protesters that are strangely and shockingly well-organized. And they're sitting there on that horse and they're just, you know, waiting, eagerly waiting to see the blood flow as the Jews kill each other in the streets of Bnei Brak. And as the furious protesters come in, here's what ended up happening in most places. It was like, like the Jewish version of the Scots embracing each other, but the Jews are just standing and schmoozing and most likely debating. Is it just me? Do you, I mean, that is what Jews do. That is one of the greatest Jewish love languages is debating with each other. It's arguing with each other. And they're sitting there peacefully and respectfully. You can see the ultra-Orthodox and the secular standing there, and they're just engaged in conversation with each other. Ah! Like the Scottish. You know, here, I want to show you now a particularly emotional video that pulled on the heartstrings of here in Israel and went viral over here. It's a video of an older protester who came into B'nai Barak with a GoPro camera fixed on his helmet, ready for who knows what. And when he arrived, you know, that uh, ancient song that Jews have been singing to welcome the Sabbath angels to our Shabbat tables for well over a thousand years, Shalom Aleichem. You know, Shalom Aleichem. It, it was blasting over the speakers in B'nai Barak as it does every Thursday night. And here's what happened to this furious secular protester when he heard the music that brought him back to the sweetness of his Shabbat, Shabbat table as a child. The video is like four times longer. I could watch the whole video again and again in a loop. Um, but, you know, it's just so beautiful seeing him touched and transformed. You know, what was meant for darkness and evil ended up bringing so much beauty and light. You know, the residents of B'nai Brak didn't, they didn't bring out weapons. They brought out Torah scrolls and they handed them to the protesters who were dancing with them in the streets. Look at this. <laughs> You know, something beautiful happened. I think there is a miscalculation where the leftist global elites perhaps miscalculated uh, by a few thousand years of history that binds us together. And, uh, and it was just beautiful. They, the, the, the Jews of B'nai Brak didn't fight against them. They didn't fight darkness with darkness. They fought darkness with, with light. And, you know, we do that with each other. We do that with friends. We do that with family. There are times I'm lost in a place of darkness and Shana, she'll fight that with light, not, not attack me and make me feel bad, but love me for who she knows I am. And they were, they were loving each other based on who they know, who they really are. You know, and, and it's, it's only that way that the forces of light will win this global war of darkness. That's it. By shining light, by storming the heavens with prayer, not prayer for the downfall of our enemies, but for their healing for their hearts to be filled with love, 
for God to flood the world with knowledge of his oneness and his goodness and for the brotherhood of all of mankind. And, uh, and so I, I think with our remaining time and my remaining energy, because you are very energizing to me, I have to tell you, I was not very high energy coming in here and I'm feeling high energy now. But with the remaining time, I want to share with you how the events that I see playing out here in the world were illuminated by the Torah portion uh, this week. The, the portion uh, that we read this week is Vayikra, right? In the book of Vayikra, the, the name of the portion is the same as the name of the book, Vayikra, which is Leviticus. Now, this portion focused primarily on the idea of sacrifices, right? The different types of sacrifices and how they were offered. It was all about sacrifices. And what essentially is a sacrifice? Well, the truth is that the word sacrifice isn't really a good translation. A korban comes from the word karov, which means to come close. And that is its function and that's its purpose. So there are, of course, um, you know, different explanations of how a korban fulfilled this function, whether it was that when the uh, sacrifice was an animal, for example, because they were not all animal sacrifices. One of the most beautiful and precious ones to God was the simplest mincha, a flour and oil. But, uh, you know, the person who, who brought, when it was an animal, the person who brought it would see the animal being slaughtered and realize that on some level he deserved that fate and that he must return his heart to Hashem with, a, with regret and with a, a broken, contrite heart. It's supposed to wake us up. I don't know if you've ever seen an animal being slaughtered, but it does, it wakes us up. Now, there are others that teach that, you know, that the human being is a mixture of the animal and the divine. We've touched on this in the fellowship before. I don't want to dive too deep on it. But I mean, there's no question that we have a lot in common with the animal kingdom, at least physiologically, at the very least, with, uh, you know, the, the animal kingdom on various, uh, our various drives and impulses are very much the same on the basic level as what we see in the animal world. And it's those animalistic impulses which overwhelm our godly soul, the godly dimension, and that leads us to sin. And so when we sacrifice the animal, it's as if we are calibrating our soul and sacrificing the animal desires within us that led us away from Hashem. Now, Rav Nagin teaches it a little bit more in depth. Uh, there, there's a debate that's happening, you know, predominantly the, the Tanya. Anyways, I'm not going to go into too much detail. But there's a debate within Judaism about whether the battle between the animal and the divine is the, you know, perpetual war that is just the human condition. That is the human condition, this perpetual war, as long as we're alive, our animal side and our divine side are fighting with each other. Or whether we're a synthesis of both, a synthesis of the animal and a synthesis of the divine, and we're not here to declare war on our, on our animal side, rather to harness it for holiness by ensuring that our intellect, which is the seat of our soul, is able to dominate and sublimate and channel the animal impulses to become godly impulses. And it elevates those base animal desires to the greatest level of holiness. You know, particularly, you know, the sexual impulse can be the lowest of the low or the highest of the holy. You know, in the tabernacle itself, there were the two cherubs that were embracing each other. You know, the male and the female, it's those two energies, very powerful energies. And if we are able to have our divine control and harness that, it brings tremendous light and holiness into the world. You know, for years, one of my ideas in my mantra is from the words of Rav Schneer Zalman of Liadi from the Tanya. He says that the foundation and the root of the entire Torah is to raise and exalt the soul over the body. I would read that every morning because it would just help me remember and realize a very real practical thing. The foundation and the root of the entire Torah is to raise and exalt the soul over the body. Okay, so in the beginning of the Torah portion, we see the second verse. We see it hinted to right there. So here's the second verse. Daber el el Adam ki akriv mekem korban. When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle. Now, Rav Nagen brings down the teaching that the verse says that the, the offering must be of you, right? When a man of you 
brings the sacrifice, but also of the cattle, meaning the sacrifice is brought of you, but also of the cattle. And why is it? Why is there this seeming contradiction in order to teach us that the beast is included within the man himself? And when we sacrifice a korban to Hashem, we're sacrificing our animal nature to Hashem. That which is not only within the animal, but really within us as well. So Rav Cook explains that mankind was created with two life forces. I would say two souls, but that's sort of charged and could be misleading. Two life forces. There's the neshama, the divine holy soul within us, the divine spark, that peace of Hashem, which is within us. And there's the nefesh, which is the animal life force, which we share with the rest of the animal kingdom. All animals have a nefesh. So these two forces are supposed to be balanced within us, with the neshama, the divine soul within us, harnessing and directing and elevating and really calling the shots for the beastly life force that's within us as well. But when we fail and when we fall and we do, and we allow that beastly impulse to overtake the godliness within us, it creates a horrible, painful, dark imbalance of sin. And the sacrifices in the temple help to realign and properly balance these forces within us. Does that make any sense? Anyways, that's why I love so much Yishai's third scenario. Only a few of you really weighed in on which scenario you thought was the best. But Yishai's third scenario about the cooperation of the two tribes of Yisachar and Zavulun. Right? Yisachar supported Zavulun with their materialism and with their, uh, you know, their, their finances and their sort of capitalistic endeavors. And in return, Zvulun shared their spirituality with Yisachar, and they shared the merit for that, and they loved each other for it. They weren't doing it against each other's will with resentment, but they loved each other for it. Each one was doing what they needed to do. There doesn't need to be a war between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. We are both created by God, and if we only, if we only embraced each other, loved each other, and appreciated each other, we wouldn't need to fight this, you know, unnecessary, really it's an unnecessary war that we're fighting. We're presented by it with this binary, either this or that, and it's not true. We could realize that this is not a zero-sum game, that we have a critical role to play in the world in order to truly serve as a light unto the nation. There's a reason that there were 12 tribes, because each had its own strength, each has its own strength, each has its own gift, to contribute both to the nation of Israel and to the world as a whole. And that's why it brought me so much joy to see those scenes from B'nai Brock, because it was a little taste that, that there's hope that that could happen. Because if we're able to love each other and bless each other, you know, despite our differences and our disagreements, that love and the expanded consciousness that comes from that love could be released throughout the world. And rather than smashing and destroying the differences between us, the nations of the world can embrace our differences, all of us, each of us contributing our divine gifts to the welfare of all of humanity. I think in Israel, we really need to lead the path in that recognition and that consciousness and that awareness that every nation has its gift that they're giving. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the nation of Germany has such a real fundamental, powerful role in the unfolding of what's happening on this farm. The nation where the greatest darkness has come from are contributing so much beautiful light with their you know, skilled craftsmen and engineering and work ethic uh, and carpentry. They're, and th that's just among the gifts that the German people have. And they're contributing and bringing light to the world through that. You know, we see it, we can feel, we can feel the redemption unfolding. And, uh, and that's why I, I want to wind down by blessing all of us that in this final stretch towards redemption that we're, you know, we're embarking upon together, we should be blessed with the strength and the courage and the vision to subordinate, to sublimate the impulses, the animal impulses in our own hearts to the divine spark within us. And by sacrificing those forbidden animal impulses within us, and yes, at times, at times, leaving them unfulfilled, that in the merit of that sacrifice of our beastly desires, that we're able to bring balance and equanimity to the world, that we're able to have expanded consciousness, and that we're able to love those who up until now, we may have hated. And with that love and that light 
may we be able to banish the darkness and the hatred from the world together and bring God and light and goodness into the world. Amen. And now, as I say every week, it's my great joy to bless you with the Aaronic blessing. The blessing, of course, that Aaron the high priest blessed the Jewish people with every single day and with which his descendants, even today, bless the nation of Israel every single day. And I've said it before, I'm not a Kohen. I'm not a descendant of Aaron the high priest. But I am from the nation of Israel. And the Torah tells us we're a nation of priests that are tasked with the great honor and the great privilege of blessing the nations of the world. And some of those nations, it's hard to bless. But some, it's very easy. And it's very easy for me to bless all of you because you're such a blessing to me and such a source of light. So having said that, with your permission, I would like to bless you with the ironic blessing. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisemlecha shalom May Hashem bless you and protect you and watch over you. May Hashem cause his countenance to shine to you and show favor to you. May Hashem raise his countenance toward you and grant you peace. Amen. I love you, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay connected. Please continue to pray for each other, to pray for me, for my father. I read this. It's like a, a prayer book that Ardell puts together. If you don't get it, reach out to Tabitha, reach out to Ardell. We need to continue holding each other up in prayer. I know you've done it for me so beautifully, and please, God, I'm able to continue doing it for you. Shalom, my friends. I love you. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.